you'll turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 10. We get to pick up in our study and I'm just so thankful for the riches of this text because Paul is demonstrating the riches of the glories of the gospel. And the gospel is so encouraging to us because it demonstrates the power and the wisdom of God. And there's joy in the knowledge of the truth that God has given us. When you think about man's greatest need, man's greatest need is for the forgiveness of sins and to be reconciled to God. Every religion tries to answer that question, how does a person relate to a deity? Do you have to go find the deity? Are you hoping that the deity would, uh, would be uh, pleasing towards you and demonstrate mercy towards you? Do you have to earn that deity's favor? Are you going to come back reincarnate as something different? What is the answer to eternal life? Every religion seeks to give some kind of answer to that question. And here Paul gives us the gospel of God. Here in Romans chapter 10, and as we are looking particularly from verses 5 through verse 13, Paul defends the gospel of God against the message the Jews themselves had believed. And he is demonstrating the riches and the glories of this gospel. And there should be, as we come through this text, the result should be for us greater confidence in God's message, greater confidence in what he has given us, because God demonstrates the riches of his glory through the gospel of Christ. And what Paul has demonstrated for us in this, as he started in verse 6 of chapter 10, he has said to us, we haven't been sent on a journey to go to impossible heights to find salvation. Notice what he says, this righteousness based on faith speaks as follows, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? And then Paul's qualifying phrase, that is to bring Christ down. Don't say, where will I go to find Christ to bring him to us? God hasn't sent us on this journey to find what would be impossible. I was struck by that reality this week when I was watching a documentary on the James Webb Space Telescope. And this space telescope is taking pictures of our universe, of distant planets and stars and galaxies, etc. And scientists are filled with hope and anticipation that they're going to find life out there and they're going to find the meaning of the universe and they're going to find how it all began and they're going to justify their theories that they have developed. And at one point in this documentary, as they were talking about different planets that were out there that could possibly sustain life, Planets, again, that were far enough away from the star that they would, wouldn't be, uh, the temperature would be adequate enough for life and all those things. They, they were excited that they found one that was 45 light years away. And then they kept looking. They said, well, there's another one that's 16 light years away. So we're getting closer of finding a planet that's nearby that could sustain life. And then there's another that's only 4.2 light years away. It's known as Proxima Centauri B. This planet, only 4.2 light years away, gives now the scientists hope that there is, if 
You know, we mess up this planet through all of our policies. We might be able to jump on a spacecraft and fly to this planet again. It's only 4.2 light years away. The problem is, well, let's consider the distance of one light year. Consider that distance. What kind of, how long would it take for us to get there? And there's a lot of different ways to answer this question. How long would it take for us to travel one light year? Well, if I had a spacecraft that traveled at the speed of light, it would take me one year. And if I had a spacecraft that traveled half the speed of light, well, then it would take me two years. And if we had a spacecraft that actually traveled at the speed of a lightning bolt, you know, when you see the storms and you can see a lightning bolt strike from the ground to the sky and you see that light. Well, if I was traveling at a speed of that lightning bolt there, the return stroke, it would take me three years to travel one light year. And there is a group out there known as Breakthrough Starshot that says that they have developed or they will develop a spacecraft that will be able to travel one light year in five years. Only a couple problems with that. The first of all, still, it's only theoretical. And then second of all, it's only the size of one gram. So none of us are getting on that spaceship. You could travel at the fastest recorded man-made object, Helios 2, when it was sent out to observe the sun and it swung around the sun, it, <clears throat> if we were to travel at that instrument, it would take us 4,269 years to travel just one light year. And if we were to travel at the top speed of the Saturn V rocket that sent us to the moon, it would just take us 108,867 years. If you were to travel at the speed of the world's fastest airplane, it would take you 305,975 years to travel one light year. And if you were to travel at the speed in which you drive on the highway at 80 miles an hour, which, by the way, you would be speeding if you traveled at that Speed, it would take you just simply 8,388,270 years to travel one light year. This is an impossible distance. And then you have to take those numbers and multiply it by 4.2. So while there might be a planet only 4.2 light years away, that for us and the average and normal lifespan of a person is an impossible journey. But yet for the scientists who think this world is going to die and is going to be destroyed and we're about to waste it all and their redemption is another planet, this seems for them to be hope. But even the pursuit of such hope would be empty. That's not the gospel given to us, sending us on a fool's journey, trying to give us hope only to lead to despair and emptiness. No, Paul says in verse 8, what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. The gospel is near. The gospel is not far away. 
The gospel of hope isn't something we have to seek to investigate and find. It's not something that is hidden that we have to go discover. It's not something that we have to work for uh, having hope only to run into great futility. No, this gospel is near to us. To which then Paul has been, from verse 9 to verse 13, gives us five characteristics of the glories of the gospel to give us confidence in this message. And these are significant for us, because in day, today's day and age, we have been tempted to think, well, the gospel is so old, I mean, it's given thousands of years ago, we have to do something today to freshen it up. We had to do something to make the gospel more compelling, more engaging, more uh, relatable to a modern audience. And yet, I love the truths that Paul is laying out here because Paul is reminding us of the significance of this message. We saw the first one in verse 9 is that the word of God and the message of salvation is accessible to us. We see that particularly in verse 8 again. The word is near. It's accessible. It's plain. Again, it isn't hidden from us. It's made clear to us, so it's accessible. We can receive it. In fact, many know it. Many have heard it in a lot of different venues and ways in which they've heard the gospel of God. So it isn't something we have to go search to the outer edges of the universe. Which, by the way, the Space Telescope tells us that's 13.1 billion light years away. You can go do the math on that impossible distance. They don't have to travel to that far ends to find it. No, the gospel is near. Second of all, we saw in verse 9, the gospel is simple. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe with your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. If you confess, that is to say the same thing as God is to acknowledge and say what God says about Jesus Christ. To confess and to believe. To believe is to trust. To believe and entrust oneself. We confess what God says about Christ and we believe. That is that we know the truth, we affirm that it is truthful, and we submit our will to that truth. We believe upon the testimony of God about Jesus Christ. The gospel is simple. It is a call to confess the authority of Jesus Christ over your life and a belief that God has satisfied the debt of sin through Jesus Christ. This message transforms and saves. It's simple. Thirdly, we saw, it is effective. The gospel accomplishes God's purposes. It accomplishes exactly what we would hope for it to accomplish. It's effective. So he says at the end of verse 9 and the end of verse 10. At the end of verse 9, you will be saved. At the end of verse 10, the one who confesses results in salvation. It is effective. So that God is able to do what he says he will do through the gospel. He will save. He will redeem. So that we don't have to complete God's work in some way. It's not like God has gone 99.9% of the way and he just needs us to go that last 0.01%. It's not something that we need to complete. It's not something we need to add to. God effectively saves through the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Through Christ we are saved. 
It is powerful. It is effective. Paul has been saying this throughout the book of Romans. He started this out in chapter 1 and verse 16 when he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God, notice, for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. God's gospel saves. It is effective. No one will be able to stop it. It will accomplish all of God's good purposes. Wisdom of man may reject it. Man's in his own pride may push against it. Certainly Satan and his devices will war against it to seek to corrupt it. But nothing will be able to stop the gospel from accomplishing exactly what God intended, which is to redeem and save. It's led us to the fourth point, and we started to look at it last week and summarize a little bit more this morning, is that the gospel is indiscriminate. It is indiscriminate. It is for all. It's not for a particular kind of people. It's not for a particular race of people. It is for all people. And Romans chapter 10 and verse 11 emphasizes that. For the scripture says, whoever believes. And you also see there in verse 12, he is the Lord of all. And you see in verse 13, whoever will call. The word whoever there is the word, the Greek word pas. It is translated as, it means all. So literally, he says, for the scripture says, all who believe. And in verse 13, all who call. The emphasis is on the indiscriminate work of the gospel. It is to be presented to all. All will hear. All should hear. It should be proclaimed to every person. Man, woman, and child. It should be proclaimed to every nation, every race, every person. For it is for whoever calls or all who call will be redeemed. It is indiscriminate. We don't keep the gospel back and on ourselves measure a person and decide whether or not they're worthy for it. It's not upon us to limit it. It is to be proclaimed to all. And I love this in, in verse 11. Not only is it indiscriminate, but it leads to satisfaction. Notice, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Here, Paul is quoting Isaiah chapter 28 and verse 16. In that, the, Isaiah says that there is a choice stone, a cornerstone that is laid up. And it says in Isaiah 28, 16, he who believes in it will not be disturbed. They won't be disappointed. All who call upon Christ, all who believe upon him, are not going to be disappointed or disturbed. So what, what does that mean? It means that you're not going to be led to a point where you are uh, up, upturned or, or left in disappointment. Maybe I can illustrate it like this. There was a article that I read last month. Sometime back in June, a couple of people wanted to go to a concert, a Taylor Swift concert. We can judge their motives later, but they wanted to go to this Taylor Swift concert, and so they went to look for tickets. And they found two individuals, Gilberto Torres and another gentleman, who were selling tickets. The only problem was that tickets were fake. And in July, they were arrested and had to give an account that they sold fake tickets to a Taylor Swift concert. 
And imagine if you were the person who bought those tickets and you were heading in to go to the concert and you showed up at the door and you were rejected or turned away, you would be left disappointed because you had the fake tickets. Paul says here in Romans 10, 11, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. To believe upon Christ, you're not sold a fake ticket. You're not given a pass that you think this is it, it's what I need, only to be left disappointed on the day of redemption. No, this whoever believes will not be disappointed. So we have a message again that's near. We have a message that's simple. We have a message that's effective. We have a message that's indiscriminate. We now lead to the last point. We have a message that is secured. It is secured by the person and work of Jesus Christ. What we see in verses 12 and 13 are four ways in which Christ secures salvation for us. Our salvation is secured, and the gospel is secured because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And what Paul draws out, I'll give you the qualities and I'll go back and explain them. We see the quality of the authority of Christ in verse 12, and the generosity of Christ, again in verse 12. And the sufficiency of Christ in verse 13, and the exclusivity of Christ. And again in verse 13. Four qualities of the work of Christ that secures the gospel for us. So again, there is no need to change the message. There's no need to undo it, no need to adapt it because of the present ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ that secures the gospel for us. So let's look at this. Last detail, four ways in which Christ secures the gospel. The first is his authority. Notice verse 12. He starts again in verse 12, and he gives a kind of qualifying statement, first of all, at the beginning, that that sets a context for us. It may seem out of place for a moment until you understand the context. Notice what it says, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. So what is this statement? It seems to be thrown out there, but this statement sets up the context of this message. For this statement tells us for those who are the recipients of the gospel. Who are the recipients of the gospel? Well, there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. It is for all Jews and Gentiles. And who's that for? Well, that's everyone. I mean, you either fit in one of two categories. You are either a Jew or you're a Gentile. There are no other categories. You're a Jew or a Gentile. And for the gospel is to go out to Jew and Gentile. There's no distinction. So this message is to go out to all. And notice, so that sets up a context. And then we see our point here, the authority of Christ for... The same Lord is Lord of all. What Paul does here is explain who Christ is. Christ is the Lord of all people. Jew and Gentile, there is no distinction. Why would this be concern that what Paul would bring out here is because of the mindset of the Jew. The mindset of the Jew is they were the people of God. They were the chosen people. They were the holy ones. They were the ones who had salvation. They were the ones that the oracles of God came to. 
They were the people who, of course, they had to be saved because they were the chosen people of God. And Paul expands this and says, not only for the Jew, but also for the Greek, also for the Gentile. And then he expands on this. Jesus is Lord of all. What is this idea of Lord? What is he referring to here? Swear Lord, Kyrios. There's a lot of different ways it can be taken. It means, literally, one having legal power, a lord or a master. It could be a lord over property, uh, whether that property is tangible property or slaves. It could be used in a non-religious sense to be one who is controlling his own property, like an owner or a master. Or one having an authority over a person, like a lord, a master. That's a non-religious sense it could be used. Or it can be used in a sense of a title. Like, for example, I may decide, and I'm quite tempted to decide this, that when my kids come home, that they must call me lord. Kids, as I, dad enters in, don't call me dad anymore, call me lord. It's a title. If I ask you to get a drink... You say to me, yes, Lord, I will get your drink. I could use it as a title. Or the third way it could be used is an idea of a religious usage. It's a designation as a title for God. Again, this would be the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a title. The question is, what way is Paul using it here? Is he using it as a religious title? Is he using it as a personal title? Or is he using it as a uh, a sense of authority or Lord or Master? Again, the only way to answer these questions is look at the context. And notice the qualifying phrase that comes next. He is Lord in this phrase, a genitival phrase, of all. His authority over all people. And the all there, of course, refers to Jew and Gentile. He is the Lord of all people. What sense is Paul speaking of here? He is acknowledging Christ's authority as master and ruler over all people. That's the authority of Christ. Christ has all authority over the things in heaven and on earth. He is the master of all people. It's not just a title. Certainly he is the Lord Jesus Christ as a religious title. And certainly we could call him Lord as a title, as a sign of respect, like we would say Sir or Lord. But it's much more than that. He is in the position of authority, the ruler over all people, whether Jew or Gentile. This is what the scriptures have emphasized. That the name of Christ in the name of God, every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance, Isaiah 45, 23. And affirmed again in Philippians 2. As Paul affirmed this, to the name of Christ, there will be a swearing of allegiance and a bowing of the knee. There is an authority in Christ. Again, notice in our, our text here that this has been regularly emphasized by Paul back in verse 9. Confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord. He's emphasizing his place of authority. Here in verse 12 again, for the same Lord is Lord of all. His place of authority. Again, this is where the heart of man struggles 
the most. And I think that's why Paul picked this particular title. Because he could have referred to Christ in a lot of different ways. He could have talked about if you believe back in verse 9 or if you confess Jesus as Redeemer. No one would have a problem with that. If you confess Jesus as the great physician or you confess Jesus as teacher, you confess Jesus as counselor, we wouldn't have any problems with those terms. It's the term Lord that the heart of man struggles with. We don't mind Jesus as a savior who redeems, and the man doesn't mind Jesus as a teacher who informs or a physician who heals. The heart of man doesn't struggle with Jesus as a counselor who gives help or as a man who proves to be an example or as a religious leader who leads. We don't struggle with any of those ideas. But as soon as Jesus is recognized as a Lord or master who rules over us, that is the struggle. Paul says here, the reason why this is significant, because he is Lord, because he is master, because he has ultimate authority, the gospel is secured. To say it differently, if you take Jesus away from being Lord and master, you undermine the credibility of the gospel. You say there is a greater authority than God. There's a greater authority than Christ. And you then undermine the credibility and defense of the gospel of God. What secures the gospel is the ultimate and unrivaled authority of Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. No other person has operated in such an authority one man did for a brief period of time, Nebuchadnezzar. You go back and read through the book of Daniel. You see Nebuchadnezzar's unbridled authority. He didn't have a senate to have to give an account to. He didn't have a parliament that he had to go talk to to get permission to do what he wanted to do. He didn't have a political or a military force that he had to run his plans by. He operated with a kind of authority, unbridled. He determined exactly what would take place. He set laws. He determined what would take place. Since that time, every other government that has come has come under subjection, under checks and balances, under limitations. And it will continue so until the Lord Jesus Christ comes. And when Christ comes, he will come and he again will exercise unbridled, unrestrained authority because he is Lord of all. Think about then, what does the heart of man do when he operates with unrestrained authority? He uses it for himself. Uses it for his own advantages, his own gains. But not so with Christ. And this leads us to the second point. We see the generosity of Christ. If Christ, as he is, is the Lord of all, we see the second truth. He is generous. Notice at the end of verse 12. Abounding in riches for all who call on him. He is generous. And abounding in his mercies, it is, the word abounding is overflowing. He is overflowing with his riches and kindness. 
He isn't using authority for his own personal selfish gain as to exalt himself. He is using his authority to pour out the abounding riches of his grace and mercy. He is generous. Again, notice, to whom he is regenerous, he is generous to all who call on him. Generous to all. Again, you think about the riches of God's grace, and I love this phrase, abounding in riches for all who call. When you think about salvation, it could have been just enough that God forgave our sins. But he does so much more than that. Not only does God forgive us of sins, but first of all, he regenerates us and gives us spiritual life that we would see. He puts us in the body of Christ so that we can enjoy fellowship with one another. He has given us his word that we may understand him better and understand his ways. He has given us, uh, again, in the body of Christ, he has used the body of Christ to build us up and to edify us. He's given us the spirit of God to bring conviction and understanding and strength. He's given us the hope of adoption. Again, we are adopted and made as sons of God, heirs of eternal life. Again, God could have kept us at such an arm's distance away, having forgiven us, but never reconciling with us. That's not how he works. He is abounding in riches for all who call upon him. He is generous. Overwhelmingly generous with his mercy and grace. Demonstrating again that he is not like us in how he operates. The gospel is secured by the work of Christ in his authority. It is secured by the work of Christ in his generosity, for it is poured out to all who call. And again, I love this language that Paul is describing here, because he is not limiting or narrowing. He is just giving the indiscriminate, full offer to all, to whoever, to everyone who calls. And again, sadly in the English, it doesn't come out as often but in the Greek, it's emphasized over and over again, all, all, verse 11, all, verse 12, all who call, verse 13, all who call. The emphasis is on the lavish, generous offer of God's grace. It leads us to the third quality of the gospel, work of Christ and his work. He is sufficient. He is sufficient. Again, it's seen there at the beginning of verse 13, whoever will call on the name of the Lord. The sufficient work of Christ. We say of the atoning work of Christ, it is sufficient for all. It is sufficient for the whole world. No generation has exhausted the grace of God. No person has exhausted the mercy of God. No one's transgressions. God isn't out there weighing out, well, I've got to determine how many more sinners to save because I'm about to run out of grace. So I'm about to run out of mercy here. Christ's sacrifice is about to run out, so I can only pick a few more here. No, it is sufficient for whoever will call on the name of the Lord. And again, it's also limited to those who call on the name of the Lord. It is sufficient. It is able to care for, 
all of the needs of the world. He is able to satisfy all sins. It doesn't matter if somebody was a hostile Jew. It doesn't matter if they were a rebellious Gentile. It didn't matter if they were a blasphemous pagan. It doesn't matter if they were an atheist, a murderer. It didn't matter if they were an adulterer, a drug addict, a drunkard. It didn't matter if they were an immoral person or a self-righteous person. There is a sufficient sacrifice in Christ for whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I love this. There's only one sacrifice. There's only one way of redemption, and it's through Jesus Christ. Turn over to 1 John. I want to show you this in 1 John chapter 2. Of course, I'm going to go to the most debated passage, but it's so simple. So I'll point it out to you, though this is hotly contested. And yet I love how John explains it here. In 1 John 2, 1 and 2, after exhorting his audience to walk in holiness and to confess their sin in chapter 1, he then gives this lovely title to his audience calls them my little children. It's a very affectionate term, showing his own fatherly love to his audience as he is about to lead them on and and give them instruction and understanding. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So I'm writing you, walk in holiness, walk in righteousness, obey God, follow him. That's why I'm writing. That's why I'm encouraging you. I want you to walk in God, in righteousness. But, or and, it's translated and, but it could be translated and or but. But if anyone sins, now he points us to Christ. He says, first of all, we have an advocate. The word advocate is the idea of a defense attorney. We have a representative, a helper. We have one who stands before the Father representing us. We have an advocate with the Father. And this one, Jesus Christ, is qualified for this because, as the end of verse 1, Jesus Christ the righteous. We have one able to stand before the Father who actually is there, and he's qualified because he is the righteous one. But there's more to his qualities than that. It's described in verse 2. And here's simply, I'll give it to you and then prove it. Jesus is the only sacrifice. There's only one sacrifice that is made, and it is Jesus Christ. There's no other sacrifice out there that can bring man to God but through Jesus Christ. Your personal works aren't going to get you there. Your money's not going to get you there. Bulls and goats aren't going to get people there. The only one way is the one sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what he says here in verse 2. He himself is the propitiation. He is the sacrifice. The emphasis is on who Jesus Christ is. He is the sacrifice. And what kind of sacrifice is this? This is the sacrifice who is able to pay for, or who is the propitiation for our sins and not ours only, but the whole world. The emphasis in 2.2 is on the sufficiency of Christ as a sacrifice. Not the efficacy, but the sufficiency. He is the only sacrifice. 
He is a sufficient sacrifice for all who come to him. Not only our sins, but the whole world. Say it a different way. Everyone must turn to Christ. The whole world must turn to Christ. Everyone who wants redemption must turn to Jesus Christ, and he is able to save all who call upon him. I'll turn back to Romans 10. In this same vein here, Romans 10 verse 13, the third truth, this is a sufficient sacrifice for all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then the last point, the fourth one, we see the exclusivity of Christ. They must call on the name of the Lord. All who call upon the name of the Lord, the exclusivity. Here, in verse 13, Paul is quoting Joel chapter 2, verse 32. He's quoting the Old Testament prophet. In that context of the Old Testament prophet, he's context of divine judgment in the last days. When God is pouring out his kind of eschatological wrath, when he's bringing his judgment, he says, oh, when that judgment is coming upon Israel, it's so significant that it's happening here, that Paul is using that here in the context of Romans 9, chapter 9, 10, and 11. Because he's saying there's going to be a point when God is bringing his judgment upon Israel. He's going to lead them to the end of themselves. And he says, when they call upon the name of the Lord, they will be saved. Exclusively. There's no other name under heaven by which one is saved. There's no other name, no other source of salvation. It is exclusively in Jesus Christ. No other gurus, no other teachers, no other prophets, no other pastors, no other elders, no other churches, no other places that one could go to find salvation, but exclusively in Jesus Christ. No one should be propping themselves up to take the place of Christ. It is Christ alone as the exclusive source for salvation. That's why then any gospel minister comes, gets themselves out of the way, and puts Christ on display because salvation is exclusively through Christ, the head of the church, Christ who is the ruler over his people. This is why the gospel is secured, secured by the person and work of Jesus Christ. Think about this again, the glories of all of this. We have a message that's accessible and understandable. It's simple. It's effective. It is to be offered to all indiscriminately, and it is secure and powerful, able to accomplish its good work. What are we to do with that message? Well, that's answered next week, in verse 14 and following. When God uses that message to go out and use it to transform people, and we'll see how that works next week. As many are saying, all right, if God is all-powerful, and if he's sovereign, and if he's directing, then why don't we just sit back and uh, grab a cup of coffee and watch him do all the work? We don't have to do anything. He does it all. Well, Romans ten fourteen and following answers that question for us. Until that time, let's prepare our hearts for the taking of the Lord's table. And rejoice in this marvelous gospel that we have believed. For this gospel which has been preached to us has been used by God to change our hearts. 
And when we come to the Lord's table, we come to remember the gospel. We come to remember the life and death of the Lord Jesus Christ, the person and his works. And we reflect on who he is and what he has done for us. And in the testimony of taking of the Lord's table, we remind ourselves of these truths of the gospel. We have believed in who Christ is, and we have trusted his work on our behalf so that we are able to stand before God.